All right. Let's turn to Ecclesiastes. So we have Psalms and Proverbs, and the very next book is Ecclesiastes. We'll begin in chapter 1 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It, is already, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things to come among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Father, we are thankful that we can gather for another Lord's Day to be your people, to experience the presence of God again as we have worshipped you through song, as we are worshipping you through the word proclaimed, we are thankful. You sustain our faith. You sustain our lives. And Father, we want to make the most of this time. So prepare our hearts, prepare our eyes, our ears, our minds to receive whatever you have for us. We thank you, Jesus, you desire to do this good work in us, and we pray that you would help us, we ask that you would help us be responsive, respond in repentance and faith once again, or maybe for some, maybe for some here today for the first time. Bless this time, may you get all glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What an interesting book, Ecclesiastes. It's hard enough to remember how to spell it, much less understand what it means. But it's in the Bible, so it's included by God and, and God's people as a work inspired by God himself through the fingers of men to be included to help God's people know him and walk with him. So it has a purpose. Um, and the more you dig into it, I can promise you, the more grateful you will be that God included it in his word. 
There's no mention in Ecclesiastes of the covenants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Moses. There's no mention of the redemptive works of God and saving his people through the Exodus in the Old Testament, one of the high marks of the Old Testament uh, story. Any references that you see in this book about the coming Messiah are very, very faint and not very clear. You have to infer them more than they're clearly revealed. On the time we've been a church, we've walked through some passages in the Bible that are, that are very clear and put a big and bright spotlight on who God is and what God has done, like the Gospel of Mark, Colossians. And we've enjoyed walks through books like that where it's mountaintops of Scripture. Ecclesiastes seems to put the spotlight more on man. And, and man, that's not really characterized by his righteousness, obedience, and goodness, but man that seems to be more crabby or uh, skeptical, a little, little more skin of, cynical or, or, or jaded. John Calvin says we need a double knowledge, knowledge about God and knowledge about ourselves. And Ecclesiastes, as much as any book in the Bible, helps us to understand our human condition and what it's like to live life under the sun, a phrase you see over and over throughout the book. Life on earth in the here and now. This book is, great, is also a great book to help us build bridges to those who don't know Christ because it voices many of the frustrations that humanity experiences in life under the sun. We, we feel many of the things that, if we're honest with ourselves, if we would be as honest with ourselves as the writer of Ecclesiastes is about life, then we feel those frustrations. We feel that angst. We feel that heartache. So as we walk through the parts of Ecclesiastes over the next three weeks, so hear and listen to the book with that lens. Like, how can I use this book to connect to friends who are far from Christ? We're back in our series that we're in for most of this, the rest of this year, The Best Life. We're walking through wisdom literature and poetry of the Old Testament to see how life is at its best with God as the source and the center of our life, as described in this unique literature in the Bible. We spent five weeks back in Proverbs in April and May, seeing the life of wisdom and fearing God, being wise and not a fool, working hard, not being lazy, being generous, not being a hoarder, being a friend, understanding our identity in light of who we are in Christ more than anything else. Proverbs, we talked about, describes how most of life works, okay? You work hard, and there's a paycheck. You're rewarded. You do what's right, and you're blessed for that. You make friends by being a friend, and most of the people you're friendly to in return are friendly to you. You raise your kids to follow and fear the Lord, and they end up following and fearing the Lord. One plus one equals two. Life is predictable and orderly. What you sow is what you reap. Ecclesiastes is a book that describes life from the viewpoint of someone who's being very real and honest and raw about how they perceive life under the sun. You might say they've tried the life described in Proverbs, and their conclusion is the opening verse, verse 2. Vanity of vanities. Futility of futilities, some translations say. Or some translations say meaningless. All of life is meaningless. If Proverbs is every Spider-Man movie that you've ever seen, then Ecclesiastes is Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. You mean there's multiple dimensions and there's like half a dozen Spider-Men and one of them is a little girl with a, a Japanese robot and one is a pig and one is Nicolas Cage? Are you kidding me? 
<coughs> you have no idea what I'm talking about if you haven't seen that movie, but it's an amazing movie. This is an amazing book, but what do we do with this paradigm shift that it's bringing to our experience of God and His Word? One author put it like this, if Proverbs are the rules of grammar, Ecclesiastes are the exceptions to the rules that we all hated when we took English class in high school. It made sense until you got into upper-level English, and then it's, oh, yeah, well, that rule applies except this time and this time and this time. If Proverbs is like math with logical equations and solutions, Ecclesiastes is like music with mood, melody, and tone. If Proverbs is like meteorology giving us indicators that helped us predict outcomes, Ecclesiastes is like the weather in Louisiana, fickle and unpredictable. If Proverbs is a good man plus God's love and wisdom equals a good life, and Ecclesiastes, a good man plus God's love and wisdom, still dies like an animal in the field in a pool. In Ecclesiastes, we get the point of view of the skeptic, who, and this is key, he still has faith and trust in God. So it's not just someone ranting to be ranting. This is a person who has faith and trust and an understanding of who God is, but they're voicing all of the heartache and the skepticism about life. He doesn't sugarcoat the harsh realities of life that we experience as humans. This book, what was by the people of God, was a book that was hard to accept. Should we really include this within the, what we recognize as the canon of Scripture? Because what it's voicing about life and life under God's rule is so hard to read. C.S. Lewis, in the early 60s, he published a book under the name N.W. Clerk. By then, he was already famous, well-known around the world as a Christian speaker and author. He had Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity. He had been on the radio in England giving those talks. Uh, the, the, the Great Divorce, The Problem of Pain, Screwtape Letters, all this had been, he was well-known. So why did C.S. Lewis publish another book under the name of N.W. Clerk? It's because the book was about his process of grief in watching his beloved wife, Joy, get sick and die. And the things that he would voice in this book, called A Grief Observed, would be so hard for some people to read, who also read Lewis in his other books, be very vocal and solid and strong in his defense of Christianity. How could a man over here proclaim the reality of Christ as being the, the best understanding of how we know God that exists in the world, and over here express some very hard and harsh experiences he was having. It was only after he died that a grief observed was attributed to C.S. Lewis. He says uh, in one part uh, of a grief observed, talk to me about the truth of religion and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion and I'll listen submissively, but don't come talking to me about the constellations of religion or I shall suspect that you don't understand. Understand the rules, understand how to obey it. It all makes sense. It's true, but it's not consoling and helpful as I watch my wife pass away. He says in another place, Meanwhile, where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. In another place, he says, it doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist's chair or let your hands lie in your lap. The drill drills on. 
Now, this didn't change Lewis's conception of who God is and the truth and reality of who God was for Lewis. He was expressing how he felt and how he perceived God. The mistake we sometimes make when we go through seasons of struggle and season of, seasons of doubt is we began to let how we feel define who God is instead of what God has revealed about himself. The beauty, part of the beauty of God, including Ecclesiastes in the word of God, is God is okay to give us space to really struggle and voice those struggles. Voice the angst that we feel. Voice the confusion that we experience of trying to make sense of life under the sun. God's okay with that. He can handle it. He's big. And we have freedom to express that within the community of God's people. This is the perspective of the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. The perspective of an older man, by the way. Someone who's lived a lot of life. Many assume because of the experience that are described that the author, the preacher, the teacher here is Solomon. It, and, and while certainly it's probably not Solomon, most people don't believe Solomon's the author of Ecclesiastes. We don't know who the author is. He's anonymous. It's told from the perspective of someone like Solomon, a king, someone who's experienced all that life has to offer and is now looking back and has these ongoing reflections that he wants to pass along to the next generation, his son. Ecclesiastes is a book of questions with few answers sprinkled throughout, more hints at answers, but also trusting in the rest of Scripture to provide clearer answers. Because of the unique perspective and rawness of the book, you have to be careful about how you handle this book. One, one author I read said this, this book, along with Revelation, is the trickiest to interpret and make sense of. It's super easy to rip passages out of the context and create bad theology. And whenever you read any portion of the book, you have to have in mind the big picture of, of the themes and the theology the, that the whole book teaches to be able to apply it to particular verses. And so that's what I want to spend time doing today. And we'll spend the next two weeks walking through particular passages. But today, give you an overall view of the book, these big themes that the book presents, so that whenever you study in Ecclesiastes, and I hope after these three weeks, You'll hunger and thirst for it more, and you'll use it in relationship with other people. However you study it, you'll keep these big themes in mind so as not to uh, go into error or to make sense of confusing passages. So it begins with this opening assertion, life is vanity. That's one of the, the recurring uh, themes that he presents or is frustrated with. Life is futile. Uh, you may read in your Bible, or meaningless, depending on translation. Futile is probably the closest word that gets to the intended meaning of the author. Vanity is not a word that we see as positive, uh, nor meaningless. That's not really a, a positive word. It, and the author is not quite being as negative as those words seem to imply. He's being more matter-of-fact. The Hebrew word that's translated as vanity is, is literally breath, vapor. So a cold morning, you breathe out of your mouth, and you see this, this vapor form because the, the warm air of your breath is condensing in the cold air that's around you. And you see it. It's real. Now, try and grab it. it it's futile, right? You, you can't grab it. It's real. It's visible. You know it exists. But no matter how hard you try, you, it's elusive. You can't get it. Uh, James would echo this in James 4, 13-15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet... You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The preacher in Ecclesiastes goes through life 
And his conclusion is, life is a vapor. Life is a breath. Life is elusive. Life is hard to hold on to. It's real. We know it's happening. But it's here, then it's gone. It just passes through the night in a mist. This applies to life in general, as well as the pursuits of life, including wisdom. Which is interesting because wisdom, and we saw at the end of chapter 1, uh, wisdom so valued and highly prized in Proverbs, and now we get to Ecclesiastes and we learn there's even a limit to wisdom. We strive for it, but wisdom itself doesn't fully satisfy because not only do we not get it right, but it doesn't always work out like Proverbs tells us it's supposed to work out. I did the thing that was wise, and I still suffered. The vanity is also seen in chapter 2. We're not going to read all these passages. I'll just mention them. The, preachers, uh, the teacher here is pursuing indulgence and pleasure and food and laughter and material possessions and money and fame and success. And not only did he pursue it all, but after getting it all, he found it too was a breath. Vanity, here and gone. Like, doesn't that resonate in the American culture? How many celebrities or, or famous stars or athletes have we read that have climbed the pinnacle of success? They've won the Super Bowl. They've won this. They've achieved this. They've gotten this notoriety. And then they're interviewed down the road, and, and they're like, eh, yeah, it's all right. Even our culture understands that sometimes the things that you chase when you finally get it doesn't really satisfy Recently, I was talking to a guy who's basically working two, two full-time jobs, along with his wife working a full-time job, to provide for their family. And he was expressing to me the frustration and the angst he feels because he wants to be a good dad to his kids, but he has to work so much. And he's on this hamster wheel of, of productivity. Like, I want to provide, I want to provide, but I miss my kids. I go hang out with my kids, and I'm not providing for us to maintain the lifestyle that we want to maintain. It's not satisfying. It's futile. The preacher continues. The futility of wisdom again. The futility of hard work and toil. We love to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to fix our life and solve our problem. Any time in life you begin to struggle. Your family's struggling. You're struggling. Your mission community is struggling. We're, our church is struggling. My life is struggling in some kind of way. Well, what do we do? Well, we just fix it. Let's just start working hard to fix it. Let's start doing things to make things right, to make things better. Let's apply more effort and work harder. We'll fix this ourselves. But we learn in Ecclesiastes we are far more limited and not nearly as capable as we think we are. And even if we are capable, even if we do work hard, find success, get ourselves out of a jam, guess what's waiting for us? More problems, more jams, more difficulties. You never get there. You never get beyond there. It's, it's just one thing after another coming through life. Not only that, but as you read in chapters 3, 4, and 6, all this activity happens under the sun, which, which we talked about means on earth, an earth filled with evil, injustice, and oppression. So no matter our efforts, our toil, our striving, we, we can't fix ourselves. We certainly can't fix all this broken around us. The world is full of sick and suffering and evil and oppression and injustice. That is not going away while we live life under the sun, no matter what we do. As hard as we work, strive and seek your best life. Serve others to give them their best. And let's just say you get as much of it as possible, which no one does. Let's just like pretend like you get as much of it as possible, like Solomon thought that he had, or whoever this person is thought that he did. Where, all, where is all of this headed under the sun? Chapter 9, verse 1. 
But all of this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. The same thing happens to every one of us. We die. Death is coming. No matter if you get it all, you experience the best life God has for you. Life under the sun for everyone is headed toward death. Death is coming. You're going to die. Well, if I achieve everything I want to achieve, then I can amass a lot of stuff and I can pass that along to my kids and my grandkids and at least they'll have the leg up that I didn't have. They'll start off with a uh, further, further up the ladder than I started off with. Really? Like that, that's your plan? You want to go survey trust fund kids? Not a, not a super healthy bunch of people. Not making them work for it? Give them everything? Even if you make them work, they still might squander and lose it all or die in the process and then it's going to be left to who? There's no hope in that. Besides, you'll be dead and what does it matter to you? Some false sense of hope that you did something to help your kids, even if you don't know if it was helpful and have no idea if they will be blessed or cursed by what you tried to do for them, you gave all your life to do for them. Death is coming to all. This hospice job that uh, most of you know I have, I've been in the house of every status and class of citizen that exists in our area. Urban, suburban, rural, wealthy, poor, middle class, white, black, Hispanic, educated, non-educated, deaf visits every single neighborhood. Every single house. It's inevitable for those who live under the sun. You can eat healthy, work out, take your vitamins, and die young. There's not a one-to-one correlation. You can indulge, eat all you want, never take care of your body, and live a long time. There's not a one-to-one correlation with how well you take care of your body and how long you live. It's mysterious. I remember Sarah's pediatrician telling us once that the genetic factors for heart disease are so prominent in predicting whether someone will have heart trouble, that they've done heart cats on eight-year-olds. Because if you have bad heart genes, you're going to have issues no matter what you do. Well, someone says, well, good living helps some live longer, but the records of history are littered with people who loved Jesus, loved others, and served and were selfless and died young. The wicked and those who ran from God never believed have lived long time. There's no direct correlation there either. The only thing that's constant is death. But unless Christ returns, yeah, every generation thinks Christ is coming back in their generation, even the Apostle Paul. Don't put a lot of hope in that either. We live as though he could return at any moment, but every generation has come and gone and have been wrong. You're going to die. There's going to come a day where you're going to be lying on your bed, surrounded by the people that you love. You hope you may die all alone tragically in an accident or become estranged from your family and no one's around you when you die. This is a real happy sermon, I know. Sounds like the end of Bohemian Rhapsody. Nothing really matters. Wind blows any way that it wants to blow. Because I want you to feel what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is feeling, the weight 
of the inevitability of our death and the crushing futility of life under the sun for us humans. Really, if we're honest with ourselves, we feel this. And we don't like to think too much about it because it scares us. And that God puts Ecclesiastes in, this, in the Bible partly for us to not be afraid of this, but to deal with the reality of death, the reality of futility of life. Life is here and life is gone. We're one generation here, one generation gone. 200 years, nobody's going to know we even lived. Nobody's going to think a word about us. You put your name on a building, you have a lot of money, put your name on a building, where's that building at in, in 200 years? It's a pile of rocks. Ray Orland says that you're either living with shallow optimism or bitter cynicism. Either you're young enough or shallow enough, you really think all your dreams will come true, everything is going to work out like the way you want it to work out, you can control your destiny, I can work hard enough to shape my future, I, I can fix anything, I can get and achieve what I want, or you've been kicked in the teeth enough or lived long enough, you realize so much more is beyond your control. No matter what you do, it's never enough. You can't solve every problem. You can't make anything that you want to make happen, happen. You're just another cog in the machine of humanity. You're doing all you can to scratch out your best, but it's limited, and death is coming faster and faster and faster. So either you're viewing this through the lens of shallow optimism or bitter cynicism. So how do we respond to these realities of life under the sun? Like, you're, please get to something good. The futility of life, the inevitability of death. Well, we can, we can live like the ostrich. We can go home and, and wrap ourselves in our sad blankets and just watch Netflix and pretend like none of this is real. If I don't acknowledge it, it's not real, right? We have a children's book we read to our kids about a little boy who has a pet dragon, and he keeps trying to get the mom to recognize the pet dragon. Every time the mom doesn't recognize the dragon, it gets bigger and bigger until finally it's bigger than the house. Finally, mom says, oh, your pet dragon, I guess we better take care of it. And then the dragon shrinks back to the size of a, a pet. Some of us view um, heartache or pain or hurt or fears like that. If I don't acknowledge it, it's not real. Or maybe we run to apathy. Well, nothing matters and I can't change anything. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Then who cares? I don't care. Or we might numb ourselves by jumping from one distraction to another so as not to deal with reality, another form of escapism. Or, or we join in the chase of things that are futile to make them our ultimate because it's not going to be like that for us. I've been told my whole life how special I am, and so it's not going to be like that for me because I'm so special. And I can chase these things and make them my ultimate. My job can become my ultimate. My family can become my ultimate. My, my achievements can become my ultimate. And it'll be better for me than it is for all those other people because I'm different. And Ecclesiastes says, no, you're not. You're just another human being like every other human being who's ever lived. As I mentioned before, the harsh realities presented by the preacher in Ecclesiastes, the voice of the skeptic and the cynic, wasn't coming from a place devoid of faith. He's being real and honest because he does have faith. He's being real and honest about the realities of life under the sun, but maintaining his faith and trust in God. And these are sprinkled throughout the book, beginning in, in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. 
a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And then at the very end of the book, the last two verses, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So through these passages and others scattered throughout the book, we see some key truths emerge about how to live in light of the futility of life under the sun and the inevitability of death. Number one, God is sovereign. No, this book does not contain the covenantal name of God that's found throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh. It uses the more general term, which is common in the wisdom literature, Elohim. But throughout, there is a strong view that God does exist and is indeed the one who is in control of everything that's going on, which, which also could raise difficult questions. So if God's in control, then why does all this pain and suffering and oppression happen? We'll, we'll deal with that when we get to Job. Just put a pin in that. Hang on to it. But he is in control. Our life is filled with seasons and times referred to in chapter 3 that come and go and are marked by all various things that we experience. What we realize from chapter 3 is there have been seasons that have come before us and there are going to be seasons that come after us. We're just part of this season of life. This is our season. And it comes and it goes and it's the next season for the next group of people. We're just passing through for our short season of life on this ball of dirt headed to eternity. But through it all, man is not the ultimate determiner. God is. Man is not the ultimate causer. God is. That would be a problem if God were evil and limited like we are, but he's not limited like we are, and he's not evil. And despite all the suffering and pain and futility we experience, we see clearly throughout Ecclesiastes, it's because we're evil, not because God is evil. Evil originates inside of us. Evil does not originate with God. He, in fact, is doing everything and has done everything necessary to resolve the problem of evil and suffering and to make all things right. He's the only one who could do it, and he's done it through Jesus Christ and the gospel. But until that day, we still walk out life under the sun. God is sovereign over it all, though. We can trust. This is not, we're not living under the whim of chaos. Evil does not rule the day. Seems like it, but it's not really in control. It's on a leash. 
chaos does not rule the day. It seems like it, but it's not really in control. God is. Secondly, God will judge. The second reality throughout Ecclesiastes you see is God will judge. God will one day hold everyone accountable in judgment. Every good deed will be revealed and rewarded. Even if no one saw it in this life, God did. And every evil deed will be exposed and punished. You cannot hide. He sees everything. The scales of justice will be completely balanced. Now, being accountable and, and held accountable being judged is pretty low on the list of things that our culture wants to experience. But we know from the rest of Scripture that there is now, therefore, now uh, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So this idea of accountability and judgment is not something that should scare us as followers of Jesus, but it's intended to spur us on to good works and sober-mindedness. Because what we do ultimately in our, our eternal destination is not ultimately determined by our works. We don't, we don't live life hoping we do more good than bad so that when God weighs us in the scales of his justice, we have more bad than good, and he lets us in. Jesus has done everything necessary for us to be right with God, reconciled with God forever. And nothing we do changes our standing before God because it's based on the performance and the work of Jesus. This is why the gospel is good news. Jesus says it is finished. There's nothing left to be done. And if my trust and my hope are in Jesus, I am right with God I am reconciled with God. He is my father. I am his dearly loved son. You are his dearly loved son or daughter in the faith. You are right with him for all of eternity. And nothing you do can change that. Yet we are still going to have to stand before him and give an account. Not as an enemy, not as one to be condemned, but as a son or a daughter. And that makes all the difference. And if you feel like, oh man, feel some soberness to that, then good. That's what the Bible wants you to feel. We're not saved. Jesus doesn't come to live inside of us. We're not brought into the family of God for us to be careless or flippant about life. Eh, it doesn't matter. Do whatever we want to do. Who cares? I'm good with Jesus. God's grace has not abounded so that sin may abound. We should feel that weight of, man, it still matters what I do. Yes, Yes, you want to be able to stand before your Father in heaven. You want to be able to stand before Jesus one day and be able to pile up rewards because you've lived your life for Him to make Him known and to give Him glory. So that changes everything you do every single day. I want to do it well. I don't want to just go through the motions. I want to be genuine and real and authentic and honest and loving and kind and gracious and giving. Because I want Jesus to get more and more glory because he could accomplish that through me, even me. It's comforting also to know that the final judge will be God. He never changes. We, don't, we will not stand to give an account before man. God is sovereign. God will judge. Thirdly, fear God and obey his commands. That's the, the matter of it all. It tells us at the very end of the book. Ray Ortland. After identifying the shallow optimism and bitter cynicism presents this third alternative to how to live life in light of these realities, and it's, he calls it simple wisdom. We can't change anything about life under the sun. What are you going to do to change your inevitable death? What are you going to do to change the futility of life? Like, really? Do all you can do. It doesn't change. We, we think, like we're told, you're going to change the world. 
Nothing's going to be the same after you come along and do what you do. Life comes and life goes, and that hardly ever happens. Sure, a phone is invented, and this is invented, and that's invented. It seems to change, but it's just another form of things that have been invented for thousands of years. Just updated and new packaging. We're not going to change death. We're not going to change the futility of life. We can't impose our will on the universe. Honestly, no one really wants us to. Even you don't want to if you're honest with yourself. We're not the final determiner, but by God's grace, we can live with simple wisdom and the fear of God and life according to what he's revealed as good, right, and holy. We're still here one day and gone the next. Death is still coming, but there are benefits and blessings and joys that we can experience as God's people that the rest of the scriptures point us to as well as life eternal. God with us, us with God forever. And we can impact eternity, even if we never impact this world. C.S. Lewis found as one of his conclusions in A Grief Observed, when the door is double locked on the inside and God seems silent when we're suffering, this locked door, he says, is not the locked door that we imagine. He says, it is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question away, like, peace, child, we just don't understand things we don't understand not intended to understand but we can fear God and obey his commands be a people of the book do the things he's told us to do God is sovereign God is judge fear God obey his commands and lastly enjoy life and every aspect of life as a gift of God's grace back to chapter 3 verse 12 I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. Part of learning to live in light of our death is that once you're okay with the futility of this life and the inevitability of death, you really become free to live and enjoy everything as a gift of God's grace. Because nothing in this life is ultimate. Everything he's given us is on loan for us to use and enjoy until the ultimate becomes reality. Only God is ultimate. Nothing else is ultimate. No matter how much you love that thing or that person, they too are not ultimate. That thing is not ultimate. It's a gift of his grace. So we don't cling tightly to things that aren't ultimate. We can cling tightly to God. He alone is ultimate, and that allows us to hold everything else very, very loosely. We have to adopt what Anne spoke of a couple weeks ago. When missionaries head to overseas work, they go with what she called a body bag mentality. The end result of me heading to this country to do this work is I may come home to my family in a body bag, and I'm okay with that. It might be because I'm persecuted and killed. It might be because I served them for a long time until old age and I died over there. It might be because something tragic happened and I had to come home early in a body bag, but I'm okay with that. I embrace that. Guys, think about it. If death is settled, what else is to be feared? Jesus would come along as one wiser and greater than Solomon. He would say in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If that is settled, now we can live like no one else. Death is secure. Let's enjoy food and drink. 
because we know that every tasty morsel and sip is not ultimate and not the determination of my eternal destiny, but simply a gift of God's grace to enjoy. Every day I live doesn't change the world very much. I'm just one among billions. The universe doesn't sway according to my choices. So relax. Rest. You're not going to mess up God's plan. Enjoy this day of gift of God's grace. Every person in our life is a gift of His grace to love and be loved by. They are not pawns in our game of worldwide domination. They aren't the source of my identity, love and acceptance by my Father in heaven. They are just people, like I'm just a person. Let's enjoy one another and quit putting the weight of eternity on these relationships. The election of 2020 is not going to determine the future fate of, e of humanity. We vote, we trust God. There's not a king or any man or woman living in the White House that's going to ruin God's plans for the future of humanity. There's so much more to this. You can just carry this through every part of life. But I hope and pray I'm giving you enough to want to dig more into this amazing book that we'll do over the next three weeks. But I want to close with a quote from David Gibson's book, Living Life Backward. It's, it's his exposition of Ecclesiastes. It's a book I, I've read over the last two weeks in preparation for this. Short read. Highly recommend if you want to dig deeper into this book. He says this about living in light of the reality of our future death. Far from being something that makes life in the present completely pointless, future death is a light God shines on the present to change it. Death can radically enable us to enjoy life. By relativizing all that we do in our days under the sun, death can change us from people who want to control life for gain into people who find deep joy in receiving life as a gift. This is the main message of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. The gift of God does not make this meaninglessness of life go away. The gift of God makes this vanity enjoyable. Only possible because of the gospel. Jesus living and dying and rising to give us life in him and to give his life inside of us. For us to know God and walk with God. Paul, no doubt, with the language Ecclesiastes in his mind, writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, that if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It would be pointless to do this if Christ has not been rise, raised. But he has. And that changes everything. And that gives us a perspective on life that makes us a truly different people. And I hope and pray that's your reality this morning. And if it's not, guess what? Jesus is here. The gospel is here. The power of God is here to change you. Repent of your sins, turn from your sins, and trust in Jesus. And let him live inside of you. Father, we're so thankful that you've given us this gift of Ecclesiastes, this gift of perspective that we need when we think everything in our life is ultimate, we lose sight of what truly is ultimate. So help us, Father, to see what you see. I pray for everyone who is here this morning that Christ would be ultimate in their life. And whatever ways we fall short, we thank you for your grace that makes forgiveness and cleansing and restoration available. The mercies of the Lord are new every day. So come, Father, and help us to experience that once again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.